0: Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. On today's episode, we are talking with sports entertainer and founder of Girl at the Game, Gabrielle Starr. I am honestly so excited to have Gabrielle on the show today. I grew up a lot like her. I come from a family of massive, unabashed sports fans. Some of my earliest memories are from Kauffman Stadium and the old Yankees stadium. Gabrielle found that the sports entertainment industry, like so many other industries, was not only male dominated, but super exclusionary to women. So she decided to do something about that. She created Girl at the Game, a platform where sports are written by women for everyone. In our conversation today, I want to ask Gabrielle about her experience in the sports industry. What inspired her to create her own platform? Why did she feel this was so necessary? How has having access to a platform for the female voice to shine changed her relationship with sports entertainment? I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Gabrielle Starr is a full-time sports editor and content creator who grew up in Boston and Israel. A lifelong Red Sox fan, she founded Girl at the Game, the sports blog by women for everyone and later launched the Girl at the Game podcast, which she hosts and produces. Before building a career in sports, Gabrielle taught Hebrew and Torah to 2nd, 4th, and 6th graders in Los Angeles. The daughter of a rabbi and a lawyer, she loves to debate and argue on all things Judaism and sports, especially when the two intertwine. Gabrielle, it's such an honor to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. I'm so excited. So am I. Let's get right into it. So can you tell me a little bit about where you're from, what your background was like growing up as a Jewish woman?
1: Yeah. So I was born on Long Island and we moved to Boston when I was one. So really Boston's been my home. We also lived in Israel when I was in junior high and spent a lot of time in Israel. I did two semesters abroad in Israel, one in high school and one in college. I've lived back in New York for college. I lived in Los Angeles for two years. and um, But Boston's really my home. I grew up right down the street from Fenway Park. Um, mm-hmm. My dad is a rabbi. So in addition to going to Jewish private schools from pre-K through 12th grade, I also went to synagogue every Saturday for Shabbat. Pretty much until I got to high school when I decided I was too tired <laughs> to um <laughs> to go and I was having to feel every day in school. I speak fluent Hebrew. I taught my mom how to read Torah for my bat mitzvah. I taught kids in Los Angeles. Uh, my Judaism is very important to me. I'm not as observant as I was growing up. My parents are traditional, so they keep Shabbat, no electronics, no lights, no driving, no T V. Mm-hmm. Um, that we live within walking distance of our shul. Um, they're both very like proud Zionists. And um, my sister's actually living in Israel now, um, as is my dad's sister who made Aliyah <laughs> like 15 years ago. So Judaism and Israel is very important to me and my family. But for me, it's more about a sense of cultural pride and speaking out against anti-Semitism than it is about actually going to synagogue Um, There have definitely been times where I felt super connected to my Judaism in that way, like at my summer Mm -hmm. camp for Shabbat services. But currently it's more about things like finding my own place in Judaism, what it means to me as a Mm -hmm. young person in the 21st century.
0: How did that shift happen from growing up in a super observant household and going to a super Jewish high school to now that identity with Judaism being something that's shifted over time?
1: Well, so the interesting thing about where I went to high school, which is Gain Academy in Waltham, Massachusetts, is it calls itself a pluralistic high school. Mm-hmm. But really, um, the majority of kids were far less religious than my family. And the same thing goes for mm-hmm. Solomon Schechter. I went through K through eight. The school itself would have, you know, tefillah every single day. Kids would learn how to read Torah. You had like, you know, B'nai Mitzvahs that you were doing and there were celebrations at the school and especially at Schechter. Growing up, like, you know, you had you would get your first Siddur in first grade, you would get your first Tanakh in second grade, all that kind of stuff. But for Gan and for Schechter, really, I was always one of the most, if not the most, religiously observant at home. A lot of kids that I grew up with, their parents sent them to those schools to give them something that they weren't getting at home, whereas mm-hmm. I was already having a lot of that at home myself. It also meant, fortunately for me, that I was doing really well in all my Judaics classes because I got so much of that at home. Like, I don't think anyone else was hearing the stories that I was hearing. Like, yeah. at bedtime, I would be getting the story of, like, I would hear about, like, Bar Kokhba and stuff. And I don't think anyone else was getting that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, hearing about, like, Theodore Herzl, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So That's a really awesome experience. <laughs> yeah, like, like, half of the passwords for, like, Rand- like, our Wi-Fi password, I think, is, like, Herzl1897 or something. So if you come to Brookline, Massachusetts, you can hack into our Wi-Fi. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Keep that in mind. (laughs) I mean, literally right behind me, I have a Shyagnon Nation's Great Figures. My dad collects these little boxes, like these little figurines of just like famous scientists. And I'm pretty sure he has all of them. And it's like Herzl and Jabotinsky and Ben Goyon. And they're just like in a row on a shelf in our (laughs) apartment. Um So Judaism and Zionism is like very, very, very much a huge part of my life. But growing up, I actually was kind of hard for me because a lot of my friends didn't live in Brookline. They lived in the next town over, which was too far to walk. And I was the only kid that didn't drive. So Mm -hmm. if my friends if my friends couldn't get a ride to my house, like I didn't get to hang out with my friends. And there was definitely a little bit of a resentment there when I was a kid because it felt like in certain ways Shabbat was actually restrictive Mm -hmm. For me, as opposed to being a restful relaxation time that, like, you do things that bring you joy, which I believe is what Shabbat should be, I was often feeling resentful of, like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, kids at Jewish schools are so busy throughout the week because you're doing twice as many curriculum. Mm -hmm. And on the weekends, like, I wanted to hang out with my friends. I wanted to do, you know, certain things. I wanted to watch things on TV on Friday nights. Like, Disney Channel always had, like, the Disney Channel movies, for example, would premiere on Friday (laughs) nights. Couldn't watch them because it's Shabbat. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, there was definitely a little bit of like frustration there. But yeah. growing up, I like as a, an adult now, I look back and I feel so grateful mm-hmm. that my parents raised me that way, especially because for one thing, no TV on Shabbat meant I was reading all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: had an insane vocabulary. It definitely helped me as a writer. And like as a result, I totally was ahead of kind of the curve of just like having the stamina of reading. You know, I would read like six Nancy Drew books in like a day after Shoal on Saturdays <laughs> yeah. as like a 10 year old kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would blaze through the Harry Potter books. I would, you know, and that was great for me. The same thing with, you know, all of the Hebrew and the Hebrew, like the Israeli songs that we were listening to in the house, like we'd have Hadag Nachash on the surround system while my dad was cooking dinner. Mm-hmm. And all of that helped me with my Hebrew. Um, yeah. So looking back on it now, I treasure it a lot for both those reasons, but also just the amount of time I spent with my family because we were all home together for 25 hours,
0: not doing yeah. anything else. And the point that you brought up about how having that time totally focused has led you to creating um, more writing skills and having that transit over to your career. So you've had this really cool kind of dualistic experience going up in this way that was very connected to Judaism and now kind of going in a different direction where you're really involved with sports so right off the bat no sports pun intended can you tell us about about girl at the game and what that is sure so I found a girl at the game as like a hobby in
1: 2017 um, I really wanted a place where I could put my opinions on sports and write about the things that I cared about and there wasn't really a place that I saw that just would like let people write about things that they were passionate about. Um, I wasn't looking to get paid. Like I wasn't looking to do anything with it. It just was something where I like I had all these feelings I wanted to put them out. Um, at the time, I was working at a tech startup and getting ready to begin my first year of teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, I was freelancing as a beauty and fashion writer because I love makeup and skincare and fashion and all that kind of stuff and I always have and I'm always that person that friends go to being like I need a new moisturizer I need new this like literally last weekend my best friend since I was eight years old she and I went to a soul cycle class for the first time like basically since before the pandemic and her mom texted her and was like I know you're with Gabrielle can you please go to (laughs) Sephora and get me like this this and this I need a bunch of skincare and she knows that's so
0: funny um
1: But I like I, there was nowhere for me to write about baseball, and I grew up down the yeah. street from Fenway. My dad is a huge sports fan. His yeah. dad and great and uncle, um, who is 103 years old, grew wow. up in Boston and like would go see like Babe Ruth play at the end of his career, and like yeah. was a baby when the Red Sox won the 1918 World Series and didn't think he'd wow. see one his entire life, and saw one when he was 86 years old. So there's like a ton of sports in my family as well as Judaism, I would definitely think those are the two biggest kind of yeah. influences in my life. <laughs> um, and whenever I can write about Jewish things on girl at the game, that's my favorite thing. Like I've written about Kofax, I've written about Hank Greenberg yeah. not playing on the Chagim.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I love like one of my really good friends is this guy, Ty Kelly, who played for the Mets and the Phillies and mm. was on team Israel baseball this year and is wow. doing all this amazing work to help minor leaguers unionize. And he's a proud Jewish baseball player. Um, so girl at the game for me was really just kind of like something I was doing for fun mm-hmm. and very quickly people started responding to it and it started growing. Um, it has, I haven't looked in a long time. Last time I looked, I had like 30,000 subscribers to the website. Mm-hmm. We have the podcast as well. Um, a ton, a huge Twitter following both on my personal and the girl at the game accounts. Um, and we've had some amazing guests, including Jewish guests, Ryan LaVarnway, who is st- a former Red Sox catcher and Mm -hmm. currently he was just with the Marlins. And now I think he's playing independent ball. Um, Ryan's a Jewish MLB player and he was on the show and that was so cool for me. Got Mm -hmm. to talk to him about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, And it just became something else. And it helped me really that and the combination, Julia, I'm sure you can relate of being horribly Mm -hmm. online all the time. Unfortunately, Um, yes. (laughs) Right. So those two things together um, really helped me build a career in sports in a non-traditional way um, which is amazing
0: yeah I mean I'm from New York so definitely similar experience not with the Red Sox more unfortunately for the context of the conversation with the Yankees Um, not to create some inter-podcast rivalry though it's okay I am I'm originally from New York but I think
1: I would have been a Mets fan
0: Um, yeah yeah, I, that's very understandable. Uh, no, my because I like pain. You know, I want to be miserable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, it's really interesting that you kind of tell me the story. My dad was born in Kansas City. Um, his dad was in medical school in in KC. They were from New York. They were Dodger fans before the Dodgers moved. Um, and my dad's father became a really huge Royals fan. Um, And then he passed away before I was born, so I never got to meet him. And so many stories of learning about my grandfather were from my dad watching Royals games with us or taking us to Royals games and learning about that. So for my mom, have the Yankees influence. For my dad, have the Royals influence. And it's really interesting the way that you describe this because I feel like I've had a very similar experience growing up in a, a very sports centric family.
1: <laughs> My dad did the same thing. He, um, his father passed away when he was 15 years old, but yeah. so never got to meet him either. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the stories that he would tell me growing up were like, you know, grandpa and I did this, grandpa and I did this. One of them yeah. was that he like, for people who are listening and don't follow baseball, baseball games used to primarily be played in the daytime because mm-hmm. before the big fancy light towers that you see now, you couldn't play baseball in the dark. Yeah. Um, And so, like, postseason games, like, World Series games were played in the daytime. And so my dad told me the story of his his dad letting him skip school to go to a World Series (laughs) game, a Red Sox World Series game. And it was the only multi-homer game of Carly Yastrzemski's career. And two years ago this September, um, like, basically two weeks ago, two years ago, The Giants were in town to play the Red Sox, which like never happens because they're in the Mm. National League and they're all the way on the other side of the country. And Mike Yastrzemski is on the Giants now. Carly Yastrzemski's grandson. Carly Yastrzemski was the captain of the Red Sox. Mm. He played for them his entire career. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the greatest players of all time. And he's like, now he's like 80 years old. And Mm. his son, Mike's dad, died. But Mike is now a Major League Baseball player. And he, like everyone in Massachusetts, like, Yastrzemski is like a word. If you can spell Yastrzemski, you're a real Massachusetts person. (laughs) And um, I got tickets and on-field passes to take my dad because Kali Yastrzemski was going to be there to see his grandson make his Fenway Park debut. And my dad and I went, and Mike Yastrzemski hit a home run at Fenway Park. And it was, like, the most amazing thing ever because I was at a game with my dad at the same ballpark that he went to with his dad to go see a World Series game. And we're literally watching the grandson of the guy that they watched hit a home run in the World Series. And he's there watching his grandson hit this home run. And it was, like, the most incredible thing. And those are the kinds of things that made me fall in love with sports
0: because
1: you just... It's, like, about family. It's about Trish, like... Mm -hmm. The word Masora applies just as much to Judaism, to baseball as it does to Judaism. Like baseball, Mm. more than any other sport, I think, is a sport about tradition. It's passed down from fathers to children. And my dad raised me on baseball just Mm. as much as he raised me on Judaism. Like he raised me like my dad when he was really missing me when I was living in L.A., would just mail me baseball books. Like I would come home (laughs) and there would just be a box on my doorstep one time with like 10 books in it and I could not lift it. And I just had to kind of tilt it into my (laughs) threshold. Yeah. He would just mail me baseball books. Um, And that like that idea to me of tradition and, you know, sharing things with the people you Mm -hmm. love is the most important part of everything in my life. Judaism, baseball, anything is about sharing it because it's connection. Um, and that was a really yeah. long answer. I'm sorry, but
0: no, it was. It was that a game
1: was like one of the best nights of my
0: entire life and the Red Sox mm-hmm. lost. So like the fact that I'm even saying that shows you how serious <laughs> I am. It's really funny that you talk about this because I think this is something that I can really relate to, especially in my relationship with my father. Um, I grew up going to a conservative synagogue on Long Island and so I'd often go with my dad. Um, and I sit next to him and again, my grandfather died before I was born and I never got to meet him. And my dad, if you ever met him, he's a very loud guy. Um, so Mine he'd be, pr- too. yeah, he's Jewish. So <laughs> He'd be praying so loud and I'd be like, dad, like you're, you're being so loud. You gotta, you gotta quiet down. And he'd tell me, he's like, I said the same thing to my father when I was growing up. Um, and he always told me, well, heaven's a long way away. How is God supposed to hear me? I have to pray loud so you can hear me over everyone else. Um, and so, like all those little stories about my grandfather that I get either from sports with my dad or from going to synagogue with my dad, were things that I wouldn't hear either like anywhere else. Um, so it's really interesting. Maybe it's because both of our dads are from New York, but just kind of that experience of or in the case from New York, we you say you're born on Long Island. Um, just a similar experience of like, oh yeah, Judaism and sports being the two most important things in the entire mm-hmm. world
1: my my dad you can so we live on the end of this cute street in boston and when i was a kid um we would like walk home from shul on saturdays for lunch and a lot of the times um we would walk home with friends who lived in the area who went to our shul and -hmm. so my dad would kind of linger back and walk slower and talk with them or if i was staying home from shul you could hear my dad coming up the street at the beginning of the street from one of the main streets in the city <laughs> because he'd be talking to people. Um, That's so But there was, there was this one night at Fenway. Um, somebody I knew actually a little bit was playing, was pitching for the Red Sox. And he like, could not find the strike zone at all, um, which for people who don't know what that means, basically means like he's not executing his pitch as well, where yep. a guy can either swing or strike out. Um, and my dad, we're like sitting pretty close to the field. We were sitting in these really nice seats. And my dad is shouting, throw strikes, like really loudly. And so then later in the like later at night, I hit up this player um just to be like just to be like, yo, did you hear, did you hear <laughs> somebody in like the eighth inning screaming, throw strikes at you? And he's like, Yeah. I'm like, that was my dad sorry <laughs> like i have to remind him that he like is like has this booming like i mean he has a lovely voice and when he sings like on like for the like a and stuff at show like i always thought he had such a gorgeous singing voice but he has a booming baritone voice and yeah. i'm like i'm like Daddy, people can hear you the players yeah. can hear you it's late in the game, and they're not doing well this season. Like, there's not a lot of people here. Like, it's a loud, oh, no. echoey
0: ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really, really funny. So you've taken all of these experiences that you had growing up, um, sometimes with Judaism, but mostly with sports, and you've created your own platform for women with similar experiences, which, I mean, you and I didn't plan to have similar experiences going into this podcast, but we found that we do. I'm sure this is a story for so many women like us. Um, you've created this this special platform. Why do you feel that it's important for for women to have a platform where their voices are shining in the sports field?
1: Well, my petty answer to start off would just be because <laughs> it really makes some men mad, which shows you exactly why it's necessary. I love that, by the way. So I'll, I'll give I'll give an example um, from baseball again. Um, so Wednesday night um, on ESPN, it was the first time that there were a fully female booth on ESPN. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be one of my really good friends, Melanie Newman, who Mm -hmm. is the play-by-play for the Orioles, Mm -hmm. and Jess Mendoza, who is a former gold medal Olympian in softball and has been doing ESPN commentary for years. I know them both. They're incredible. They're hardworking. They also get so much hate literally for just being women in the booth because men Mm want to hear Vin Scully. Or, you know, Harry Carey. They don't want to hear women because it makes them uncomfortable. Not all men, obviously, but a lot of men, based on what I see on Twitter, are like, I don't want to hear a woman in the booth. Women didn't play baseball, so they don't know what they're talking about. Meanwhile, tons of the most famous sports broadcasters and commentators never played a single game. Yeah, Tons of coaches never played, and they coach. The difference Mm -hmm. is that those are men. And so, therefore, mm-hmm. you don't see someone being like, well, so-and-so never played. And therefore, you know, what, like, it's whatever. So, yeah, this whole thing was going on. And I'm listening to this game. And it's Dodgers-Padres. So, it's not even, like, bad teams. It's a team in the wildcard hunt. A team that was supposed to win 100 games but kind of fell apart. It's a huge marquee game on ESPN. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm hearing two women talk about baseball. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. You know, Susan Waldman is on the Yankees broadcast, but I didn't grow up listening to Yankees games. I grew up listening to Red Sox games and the Red Sox broadcasters were all men. And that doesn't mean that they did something wrong, but no one ever thought to be like, maybe a woman has opinions on baseball that she should be a color commentator. I literally, that representation matters. Yeah. And I hear this from young girls who reach out to me and it's like the biggest honor when a girl's like, you make me want to be a sports writer. Because no one ever said to me, like, until I was 24 years old, nobody ever said to me, like, maybe you should think about going into sports. I wrote a paper my junior year of college on the history of the Red Sox or this history of Boston class that I was taking at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And I got an A plus. And still, the professor was not like, maybe you should look into, like, sports journalism. No Mm -hmm. one suggests those things. It's like, if you want to do it, you need to find your own way because it's not being like offered to you the same way it's being offered to guys. I've had to work so incredibly hard just to even get my foot in the door. Yeah. So my, my dad said to me, and this has always stuck with me because he, my dad always believed in me. He's always supported me but he gave me like kind of like the tough love of like, I'm not going to like sugarcoat this for you. He said, you're going to have to work 160% as hard to seem as prepared as a man who is 60% prepared. Mm. And I have found that to be hundred percent true. If I get something wrong, I'm crucified for it. There are literally 8 million stats in baseball, more than any other sport. Baseball is a stats-based sport. And if I get anything wrong, it's not, oh, like you, you made a mistake. It's, oh, see, she doesn't know what she's talking about because she's a woman.
0: Oh my God.
1: All the time. And the funny thing is that I can say the same thing as a man. Like I can have the same opinion as a male Red Sox reporter. And I've seen this happen to me multiple times where I will write something or I will have the same opinion on Twitter And the only person who gets called out for having that opinion is me. And I'm not getting called out for the opinion being wrong. I'm getting called out for having an opinion as a woman. It's never you're wrong. It's you're wrong because you're a woman and women don't belong in sports. There's always that extra layer. Like if a man has a bad opinion, guys will be like, yo, that's such a bad take, dude. Yeah. And if it's if it's a woman, it's. See, this is why women shouldn't talk sports because they don't know what they're talking about. And most mm-hmm. of the time, like, I went to two Ivy League colleges. Yeah. I'm incredibly intelligent. I speak three languages and I can read baseball reference stats. Like, it's not confusing to look it up. Like, people will be like, oh, how'd you know his batting average? It's literally free public information on a website. <laughs> you too could know his his batting average. Right. Like, and and there's always just like, there's always kind of a a tone of disbelief or surprise or like kind of the backhanded compliment of like, wow, you really know your stuff, which is like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I? I'm a full-time sports editor. Do you think I would get this job if I didn't know what I was talking about? Like, yeah, like no one ever says like, wow, you really know your stuff to a guy in sports. It's like presumed that by working in sports, you know what you're doing because someone hired you. It's a very competitive industry.
0: Yeah. I think that's something that not exactly the same, but a little bit similar. I've experienced in political science where there's, it's changing a little bit now, but the assumption is that I, I was in a, a um, Chinese public policy class one time and my friends and I, the first day of the class, decided to count how often men spoke versus how often women spoke And it was like 80% men, 20% women, because when a woman spoke, she would always make sure her thoughts were super calculated, super put together. She had a complete like thesis behind her comment in class. And a man would ask like what page they were on in the reading. Just anything that came to their mind that was in the chat that they could check would be a question that came into their mind. And they would just ask it. And that kind of confidence in not having to prove your intellect when you're in a class is something that I think in fields that have historically been dominated by men is really hard. And we talk about imposter syndrome a lot on this podcast. I think that's something that I've struggled with a lot, that a lot of women have struggled with a lot. But it seems like you come at this with so much confidence because you know that you, you, know, that you know your stuff. Um, and so um, I think that's a really empowering model to hear and to see.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think there's kind of, there's also very thin line, fine line, kind of eggshell situation for a Mm -hmm. lot of women in sports where you know you you feel a lot of weight also of just the women that came before you and the women that want to that you hope will follow you in this industry of like if I do something wrong and I I know from hearing you know from my friend Melanie about this you know doing broadcast play by play if you're the first at something or you're one of the first, and I'm not saying that I'm the first, but you know, she made history doing Mm. various games for various teams and broadcast. She's made history doing them as the first for a a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And when you're the first or one of the first at something, or you're just part of the beginning of the changing of status quo in an industry, you feel this huge pressure because if you make a mistake it just gives the people who didn't want you and other women there in the first place reason next time to be like, no, because remember what happened with that woman. So mm-hmm. we're just going to go with a man. You have to be so careful. And it's it's hard. And it also leads to a lot of women in the industry being super, super protective and mm-hmm. kind of cagey, like then because there are fewer opportunities for women. And so if you manage to get one, I've unfortunately had run-ins with women who are like worried. I'm like, I don't want your job. I literally don't want to do what you do. I just want to be friends with you because there are so few of us in here. Mm-hmm. And then we can bring more friends and we can unite and take down the sexists. Like, but a lot I of women that, sadly yeah. just don't, they, they're, they're just not seeing it that way. And I totally understand why, because it's so hard just to even get your foot in the door here. That staying mm-hmm. in the room, oh, like, is is so difficult you know Mm -hmm. and um when you're in the room like and it's literally happened to me in real life before. most of the time you're one of if not the only women in there like you Mm -hmm. know when i would go to the Fenway press box there would be like maybe two other women in a room of like 40 men most of them are like old white dudes and they Mm -hmm. look at you like what's she doing here And you Mm -hmm. feel out of place. And then all of the things that you're thinking in your head of like, I don't belong here. I'm not good enough. They're like, see, we told you. Because now the outside is giving you the same information. And it's hard. And it's one of the reasons that I actually don't like sitting in the Fenway Press Box. And I usually don't apply to be credentialed for games because I'd rather sit in the stands and just be a normal person. I can do the same amount of tweeting. My phone still connects (laughs) to the Press Box Wi-Fi down with the normal people. And I don't have to feel like... I'm being judged or ogled or questioned. Yeah. Um, the creepiest feeling in the world is when you are dressed professionally for work and you walk into a press box and you get guys giving you like creepy mm-hmm. looks. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: because all of a sudden you feel like you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, and know you, you don't feel hard, like but but you're you doing you something are. wrong. When right. they and, are and it's like are the you're the one being literally. unprofessional in the workplace yeah. of like virtually like undressing me with your eyes yeah. in a press box. like that's wrong and yet i feel like i need to go home and bathe in acid yeah because of your male gaze um so it's
0: hard sometimes and i I think that's a big piece of why the platform that you've created is so important because it's a place kind of free from that it's a place free from the the gaze and the guilt and the implications that come with being the only woman in the room you're in instead an empowering environment of plenty of other women experiencing similar things to you it's um, definitely
1: a place where the girls that write with me—I um, say girls—they're women, but it's because yeah. we're girl at the game. So yeah, girls. <laughs> um, every woman I know in sports has a story, yeah, of being harassed or made to feel uncomfortable or made to feel unwelcome or being talked down to. I—I I literally had a guy explain to me the other day that earned run—that ERAs, which is earned run average mm-hmm. for pitchers. Um, he goes. He goes, ERA is an average. And I looked at my computer and I was like, oh my God. I, like, I'm so done. Like, I Am can't. I even a sports I, like, journalist I'm done and for I a know day. That, like- That's it. Like, I, the number of times that someone will explain something to me and my bio literally says that I'm a full-time sports editor. And it's like, do you, do you think I would have my job if I did not know that earned run average was an average the word is right there. <laughs> like, in, in the name of... Yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, and those are, like... Those are just, like, the mansplaining. It's not even, like, the fact that I had to turn off my DMs on Twitter because guys would send me unsolicited naked photos. Oh, my God. Like, total strangers. Or mm. um, a group chat of male Yankees fans who kept making group DMs and adding me to them saying... Horribly disgusting things because you can't report DMs the way you can report public tweets. Mm-hmm. And every time I would leave the chat, they would just make a new chat and send oh me god. more horrible things, being like, "If mm-hmm. we ever see you at Yankee Stadium, we're gonna bash your head in. We hope oh your family, god. your male family members, sexually assault you." Like, oh my god, all of these horrible things. There's nothing I could do about it because they just kept adding me, and I would block them, but like it just kept coming. So eventually, I turned my DMs off. So mm-hmm. now people cannot reach me on DMs because I literally had to turn them off. No. Um, you know, so it's very fun.
0: <laughs> and I think that that experience something that unfortunately happens in a lot of industries. And so that's really kind of why we made this podcast, because I'm sure people listening to this, I mean, me listening to this, I have plenty of stories just like yours. And I'm not in the sports industry. Um, and I'm sure that anyone listening to this probably can unfortunately say the same. So that really brings us to why we made this podcast and to our last question of the, the show today, which is what do we do with this? So what do the women listening to this need to know about navigating the world as a woman, as a Jewish woman, as someone who is breaking that glass ceiling of changing the way that we view the industries that we're in about how to do it in the face of all of this negativity, still showing strength, still setting an example, still being one of the first and doing it with love lot of confidence.
1: Oh, God. Um, (laughs) I think one of the biggest things, and this is something that my friend Jess does, and it's kind of funny because it ties into Judaism really well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know how, like, when someone comes to you and they say that they want to convert to Judaism, you're supposed to turn them away a couple times Mm -hmm. to see if they Mm -hmm. really, you know, are serious. Um, So kind of something she told me was, like, when young women go to her being like, I want to work in sports like you she'll kind of try to deter them first and it's not a competitive thing. It's literally because she's going to tell them all of the things that are going to be hard for them yeah. to see if they think that they can handle it. And I, and honestly, it makes me think of Judaism every single time. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> because you have to have a really thick skin in this industry. Um, and I, did not have that. I'm by nature a very sensitive person. But what I learned, especially over the last like year or so, because I think during the pandemic, people are extra angry, extra frustrated. They really want to just fight and argue. It's brought out a lot of the worst in people. What I learned is that most of the time, almost entirely, what people say to you about you, what people do to you is more of a reflection on them than is on you. Um, you know, if somebody is super angry at you and Julia, I know, you know, this from just being online all the time, like a lot of times people come at you with so much anger and hatred and vitriol and they have no idea who you are. So there's literally no, like, unless you, unless you've said the most horrible vile thing, which you and I don't do that kind of stuff online, there is no actual reason that they would have merit to treat you that way, but they do it. Why? Because they're an angry person. Um, and so that's probably the biggest advice. Like when a, a young woman comes to me and asks me, um, I spoke to a college class, a sports class, management class in Florida virtually last year. And I just said, you know, it's going to be really hard if you want to be a woman in sports. It is. I'm not going to like lie to you. I'm be like, it's all sunshine and rainbows. And, you know, you're going to be an executive at the Boston Red Sox in two years. And you're gonna make eight figures and live in, He can help. not going to happen. But most of the time, like when someone treats you badly, it's because there's something inside of them that is hurting or that is wrong. Um, And once you learn that, it's a lot easier to kind of move on from these things instead of wondering, like, why this is happening to you, why someone would talk to you this way, like being like, I'm a good person. Why are people mean to me? because they're mean people because somebody hurt them and they want to feel better. So they're going to go try and take it out on somebody else because they can't kind of, there's this thing on how I met your mother, which is a very updated show and I don't actually like it, but there was this episode called the chain of screaming, I think. And basically it talks about how when someone like yells at you or gets mad at you, especially like at work, for example, like if your boss yells at you, you can't yell back at your boss, but now you have all this anger and like, frustration built up inside you and you're kind of just like I have nowhere to put this so what you do instead is you go and yell at somebody else you yell at somebody that you can yell at so like if your boss is mad at you then you go and yell at you know a friend or a parent or a spouse um you go and take your anger out on somebody who can not punish you um i'm not explaining this well but basically being like people who are hurt hurt will go on to hurt other people um so like the wi-fi literally went out again of course it just i don't know what's wrong with it it'll literally be full you know the all the pie in my macbook will be full for the entire time and then all of a sudden it's just dead so i apologize Well, I'll, 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 rephrase, I'll rephrase it, but basically I think the premise of the episode, and I haven't watched this in a long time, but basically what happens is Marshall's boss yells at him. And obviously he can't yell at his boss, but now he's all mad and he's angry. So he goes home and he gets in a fight with his wife, I think it is. Um, and then she goes and she yells at somebody else, basically being like, people who are hurt will go on to hurt other people. Um, but if you realize that most of the time it's not about you, you break that chain. You know, so if somebody is like really nasty to me online, I'm not going to go be mean to my boyfriend about it because A, he didn't do anything wrong. And B, I didn't either. The only person who does something wrong is the person who's saying horrible things to me. Um, and that's that's definitely just that. And also just like. Be as offline as possible, like you're on your Internet life is not your real life and like disconnecting and unplugging like the Red Sox are probably not going to make the postseason this year, and I'm honestly glad because at this point, I've kind of had enough. And during the winter, I can be so much more offline because I don't have to be talking about 162 baseball games. It's truly a blessing. By this time of the year, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. It doesn't help that the Chagim usually fall during an important part of the baseball season, Um it's very stressful. Like the amount of times that I have been at Fenway Park on like Air of Rosh Hashanah and then had to go to Rosh Hashanah afterwards is like, it's two years ago. The last day of the season was Arab Rosh Hashanah. So I was at a Red Sox game and it was, they weren't going to the postseason. Like they were already mathematically eliminated. They weren't going to play, but you never want to end the season on a lose, like on a bad note, losing the game, especially because they were playing the Orioles. The Orioles are bad. And they took the game into extra innings. And my sister and I are sitting there and my mom's texting us being like, someone needs to come home and set the table. Somebody needs to like, you know, help me make matzo balls, all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, but I'm literally not leaving. Like this could be Mookie Betts last game as a Red Sox, like all this stuff, which it was. Finally, they walked it off. They won in extra innings or they won, you know, they made it really close and they won. And then we ran home. Um, but, you know, the point being like, I'm very, I, I'm ready for a break. <laughs>
0: We could do an entire second podcast about being a Jewish sports journalist and how that has to do with when games are played and everything, but that would probably take us into like a five-hour podcast, which we won't get into today. But maybe we'll have you back on in the future. Um, I would love that. Yes, I think that's. I think that's something that we've had women on the show from tons of different fields but that experience of they, you're not doing anything wrong. They're just a mean person. I think is the biggest lesson I've had to learn in my life in the past few years. And I think that's something that I wish I would have learned sooner, not internalizing the bigotry, the just anger that a lot of people have, especially toward women because they see us as the natural person to displace that on. And that's outdated. It's, I mean, it was never okay, but it's 2021 and we're not letting that happen anymore. Um, so having that really strong backbone, I think is so important. And I really appreciate um having you on the show today as much as you shared with us um and I feel like you set this incredible example of strength and I'm grateful to have heard your story and I'm sure that everyone listening can can echo the same sentiment
1: you are too kind thank you so much for having me it's a huge treat to like actually be on another woman's podcast because a lot (laughs) of the time I'm just which is not to say I'm not super flattered whenever anyone asks me to be on a podcast but Mm -hmm. um most of the time I'm the woman in the room, mm-hmm. um the virtual room. Um last night I was on a wonderful podcast and it was me and three guys, which is great. We had a great time, but it's always nice when it's like another woman cuz there's just kind mm-hmm. of like that commiserating and understanding yes. <laughs> that you can't get when you're in a room full of dudes. Um yes.
0: 100%. So I'm that's why we do this and so I'm really glad that you Join us today, it's an honor to speak with you. And thank you so much. Thank you guys. So I'm a little bit obsessed with Gabrielle's story. The daughter of a rabbi who grew up on baseball games and Friday night dinners, growing up to create this platform which gave her the access she was lacking in her own life. I think about my own family, my great grandfather, the kosher butcher with a love for the Brooklyn Dodgers. My grandfather, my father, the biggest fans of the Kansas City Royals you'll ever meet. My mother, the child of two Israeli immigrant parents, a Yankees fan with a soft spot for Derek Jeter, baseball is so deeply woven into the American Jewish story. And I suppose it shouldn’t come as a surprise that Jewish immigrants, often escaping horrors in Europe, would turn to America's favorite pastime. But it struck me especially listening to Gabrielle's story. She was tired of not being taken seriously in spite of her passion. So she built something to make the world just a bit more accessible. And baseball is no small thing. It's the heart of so much Jewish-American culture. I mean, come on, how many of us grew up hearing about the legend of Sandy Koufax when we complained to our parents about fasting on Yom Now that I am feeling especially sentimental, I suppose that this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. Your feedback is crucial to making this show the best it can be. So contact us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. And don't forget to join us next week when we'll be speaking with editor at The Forward, Lori Adkins. Nice Jewish Girls, the production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Key Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. And don't forget to follow Unpacked at all of the social media places. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.